In the book of Lamentations, the author is focusing on uh, despair he's going through in the moment. He says, He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away, and I've forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Father, as we gather in Your presence today, I pray that we would feel this community, that we would feel Your love through each other. And as we study Your Word today, Open our hearts, open our minds, so that we can hear what you have to say to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Have you guys heard the phrase, uh, fake it till you make it? I'm sure you have. It's one of my favorites, along with, if you ain't cheating, high schoolers, you ain't trying. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Also, uh, if at first you don't succeed, never try skydiving. Um, those are some of my favorites, but this week, as I was looking through what our soul care question would be for communion, I kind of felt really bad that uh, fake it till you make it is one of my favorite questions. The reason this week's question is, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Now, faking it till you make it is the literal definition of making yourself look better than you are. That can happen at work. You know, if, uh, if you're the head of a team and all your, your team does all the work and then you're like, yes, look what I did. Or, uh, again, maybe you're younger than the working age and you're at home and someone does some cleaning that you were supposed to do and your mom says, wow, Brian, thanks for cleaning the kitchen. And there's the moment of, do I tell the truth? Or, no, you're welcome, Mom. Like, I did it once or twice. Sorry, Shelly. Sorry, Nate. Uh, took credit for uh, things that I didn't do just to, again, make myself look better. Um, another glaring instance of this for me in my life this past week uh, happened as I went to, uh, I was talking to some friends about the Joliet Red Eye 5K. All right, uh, it's, it's a race that's run every like, late October, early November, um, and I consider myself to be a runner who enjoys going to these races, right? So I, I'm, I ran a junior high in high school through you know, some of college, and then I started getting into like 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, and I've even done a full marathon. So I consider myself to be a runner. Um, and as I'm going through this week, I'm considering running this race, and I get several texts and emails with the picture of the registration page for the Joliet Red Eye 5K. It's me. I am on the cover. Like, you go to sign up for this race, it's a picture of me in my full red face, hoodied up, like, barely making it to the finish line. Uh, and 
And I look at that and I'm like, yeah, see, I'm a runner. I'm going to do this race. And I'm talking with Riley about it. And she looks and she goes, Brian, when was the last time you ran? I was like, I don't know, like a couple days ago. And so I, I have this sweet app called Smash Run. I pull it up and I was, I was trying to prove it wrong, right? So I'm like, yeah, Riley, see, I, and I have to like swipe through. I'm like, okay, well, it wasn't two, three days, four days. It was eight weeks ago. The last time I ran was eight weeks ago. Uh, so me saying that I'm a runner and getting ready for this race, like I, I looked at that picture and I was like, see, yeah. And she's like, no, uh-uh, I know. I've seen your lazy butt sitting on the couch watching Netflix. Uh, so again, even that, like here this week, I'm trying to make myself look a little better than I'm actually doing. The thing is, we need to know where we're at. We need to accurately assess how we're doing in our different areas of life if we want to truly grow. If I want to grow as a runner, I can't say that I've been consistently training and I'm ready for this race. I have to look and say, oh boy, back to square, back to square one, let's, let's get ready. Uh, even Elon Musk, who's like the modern day Tony Stark, he's, he founded PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX. He does all these crazy things and he's like the richest dude on the planet. Uh, even he understands this concept. A guy who has questions about God, not a Christian, okay? He says, I think it's very important to have a feedback loop where, you constantly, where you're constantly thinking about what you've done and how you could be doing it better. I think that's the single best piece of advice. Constantly think about how you could be doing things better and questioning yourself. You can't do that unless you're willing to accurately assess where you're at. So, with this week's question, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I am in anything? Uh, in other words, am I a hypocrite in some area of my life? My challenge to you, in order to begin accurately assessing this, is to find three people who you truly trust. Could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a sibling, could be a friend, coworker, anyone. Someone who knows you well, go up to them and ask the question, is there any area where you think that I am faking it until I make it? Am I trying to put on a facade, this front, that I'm doing better than I actually am? When they give their response, it may, it may take them a day. Like, mm, let me think about like, your list, right? Uh, when they give their response, I'm going to encourage you, don't reply. My first response to Riley, again, when she said, you're not a runner, I was like, what? of course I am. And then I obviously proved myself wrong. Don't reply. Don't respond. Take what they say, write it down, and begin noticing that pattern this week. Uh, we're going to have about 30 seconds here to begin reflecting on that. Maybe you already want to get the first, again, I, I said find three people. Maybe you want to lean over and get the first one out of the way uh, right now. You lean over and don't tell the other person what they're looking at. Ask the question before you begin telling other people what their problems are, right? Uh, but we're going to have about 30 seconds to, to start assessing this and figure out like maybe who you're going to ask this week. Uh, after that time, the worship band will uh, start singing and we can enter into communion. There are two stations in the back, and now there are actually four stations in the front. There are two regular communions on the, on the tables. If you are someone who needs gluten-free communion, you can head to the back corners of the stage and receive your communion there instead of having to go somewhere else. Uh, the other thing that we want to make you aware of is it, we know that, again, some of us, like, it's hard to just get up 
and, uh, and get communion, whether that's uh, because you're elderly or because you went through Bob's boot camp yesterday, uh, which I showed up late to and still am feeling it today. Uh, whatever it is, after the, the main rush has happened, uh, my dad and I will be standing at either table, and if you, if you need uh, communion brought to you, we'll be standing there for 15, 20 seconds or so. Just raise your hand, and we can bring communion to, this, to you this morning. So again, begin thinking about who you're going to ask, uh, about how you fake it until you make it. God, it is not that our experiences are not real or true. We just don't always understand the meaning behind them. And we can only understand the truth of our experiences when we hear it through the truth of your word and the truth of your character. We embrace your faithfulness today. We know that despite whatever we may be experiencing, we can and should always, always have hope in you. We love you so much, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I cannot think of too many better ways to begin the series we're about to begin than to hear those words. Great is thy faithfulness. We're about to begin a series that talks about the Bible being in two parts, Old Testament and New Testament. And there are some who would look at that and go, there's kind of that history background setup stuff, and then comes our story. But in reality, the Bible is two parts, but it is one story. It is one story of God's great faithfulness, of God's goodness to us. And it is a story, sadly, of our unfaithfulness, our brokenness, and how our brokenness and our unfaithfulness it goes ne- never goes unmatched by the incredible faithfulness of God. The book begins with words that are incredibly familiar. They've been read in space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This phrase was in its day and remains to this very day the single most controversial and most important sentence ever written. It has literally shaped humanity's view of the world, of existence. To understand why, you have to understand what life was like prior to the writing of this sentence, to get a sense of how these words hit an Old Testament worldview, you have to use your imagination for a moment. Imagine that you lived in the times of the book of Genesis. You've never heard of a personal God who created all things or who promises you life in heaven when you die. The idea has quite literally never entered your mind. Instead, in your life, in the, in the ancient East, you've heard a number of stories of how the world came to be. None of these myths, not one, involves a personal and loving creator. <clears throat> these belief systems embrace the thought that the universe is filled with a most multiplicity of gods, and all of these gods are limited in power, and they are morally fallible. They do wrong things. These gods are petty, and they're incredibly jealous of each other. 
As a result, you live in fear, constant fear. And your life is ruled by superstition. You live in a world where fertility gods encourage you to participate in gross sexual immorality. The people around you worship objects like the sun and the moon and the stars and the bark on the trees and little statues they've made with their own hands. The common belief is that the heavenly bodies like stars actually influence the affairs of human beings. Can you imagine people thinking that way? These people engage in practices like human sacrifice and they use them to manipulate the gods to their favor. This worldview also has an incredibly low view of human beings. People exist for doing the work the gods didn't want to do. Life is a vicious cycle between people and gods and in turn between people and people. The most common form of prayer in that time? Prayer of vengeance. God, get him. God, kill him. God, take him down. Incomprehensible violence, the elimination of the weak and infanticide were common and acceptable practices in their time. The primary objective of existence is not servanthood, as Jesus teaches, but domination, ruling over other people. The central belief is that life is just this endless cycle. It goes on and on. One generation is born, grows old, dies, and is replaced by another. And it goes on and on and on without any meaning or any purpose. Life was short, life was cheap, and life was completely void of meaning. Into this horribly destructive belief system, these words are spoken. In the beginning, God. A transcendent, all-powerful, eternal, personal being created the heavens and the earth, a handful of words, and the world has truly never been the same. Today we're going to look at three essential items that God wanted us to understand through the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'll put the first one to you in the form of a question. Why did God create anything in the first place? Do you ever wonder that? Why did he make anything in the first place? Why? It's, it's the first question of countless children. Some kids, before they learn mama or dada, why is coming out of their mouths. And it's a good thing because we use that word for the rest of our existence. Why? 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 One 20th century philosopher asked this question, why does something exist rather than nothing? That's a great question. It's a question any worldview has to answer. Why does something exist rather than nothing at all? Why? Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In these three verses, we are introduced to three entities. The first verse tells us about God tells us about our Father. The second verse, verse 2, tells us about a Spirit of God that was hovering over the waters. And in verse 3, the Bible talks of God the Father creating by speech, by His Word. Go with me over to John chapter 1. In John's Gospel, we read, In the beginning, 
the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was, and His life brought forth light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And just in case you're confused on the identity of the Word, if you go down to verse 14, we read, So the Word became flesh and made His home, pitched His tent among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. In the very first three verses of the Bible, we have a hint of the existence of three beings And another hint comes just a little bit later in verse 26. We read, then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creatures that move along the ground. By the time the Bible is finished, the concept is crystal clear that God, a single God, exists in the form of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so to symbolize this today, we have these three chairs sitting in the middle of the platform. God existed before time in the form of a trinity. A trinity, and they were in in, an unceasing love and joy and delight. Unlike the myths of the ancient world about the creation, the Bible says that God did not create beings because he was lonely or bored or needed someone to get his work done. He didn't just need minions. He created out of the richness of eternal community that he had always experienced with the other members of the Trinity. And what God does is he decides to broaden the circle. In small groups, we talk about the concept of the open chair, leaving a space open for a newcomer to join. Creation is the original open chair. God invited human beings to share in the fellowship of his circle, to share in the friendship of the Trinity. He invited us to live in his life, in his love. And in doing so, we need to understand this. He didn't invite us into this circle to become a God. We still remain uniquely human. We don't become little gods. We're invited into the circle to bask in the glory of the fellowship of the Trinity. It's the first open chair of all time. And God invites us to enter the circle, to pull up to the table, to come taste the grace, to enjoy the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This concept of friendship between Father, Son, and Spirit was so good. It was so pure. It was so enjoyable that God chose to broaden the circle to include us. Why do we exist? Because God so delights in the concept of community that he decided to expand it a billion times over. Dallas Wilder writes, God's aim in human history is the creation of, of an exclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and as its most glorious inhabitant. This is a single sentence definition 
of what God is up to in the one story. That's why we are here. That's why he created human beings, to broaden the circle. I saw another quote this week by Tim Keller that conveys the beauty of eternal community. He wrote, there was never a time in which friendship was not because from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were delighting in each other. I hope that as you encounter the story of the Old Testament this year through teaching and reading, this image will come to you time and time again. And you will see your chair. God is inviting you to pull up to the table, to take the open chair, to join the community, the friendship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What was God up to? He's up to expanding community. How about a second observation about the doctrine of creation? The second is this. God wanted his community to have a wonderful place to live. As we look at this, it is important to see the distinction the writer is trying to convey. There is an infinite difference between the creator and the creation. People in ancient times didn't see it that way. They thought the moon, the sun, the stars were all deities, that they were gods. They would pray to them. They would worship them. They would even make sacrifices to them. The writer wants to make really sure that people see the difference between God and his creation. Let me show you one way he does this that our modern mindset might overlook. Go to verse 3. We read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And the evening passed, and the morning came, marking the first day. Now there are some subtle points here. On what day did God create the sun, the moon, and the stars? Not sure? You've got to go down to verse 14. It says, then God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is just what happened. God made two great lights, one larger one to govern the day and a smaller one to govern the night. He also made stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. And the evening passed, and the morning came, marking the fourth day. So let me just ask, on what day were the sun, moon, and stars created? The fourth day. The fourth day. Now, you may be looking at this, and you're thinking, hold on. Day one, day two, day three, no sun, no moon, no stars. Fourth day, they show up. What's up with that? Why weren't they there from the beginning? Please understand, the writer is not confused He's not scientifically impaired. He wants it to be incredibly clear that the sun, the moon, and the stars were part of God's creation. They are not eternal. They are not deities. You know the original text does not even name them sun and moon? He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. That's because the name sun and moon were names of false gods in ancient times, and he wanted there to be absolutely no confusion The sun and the moon were not divine. God was able to generate light without any help from them at all. 
And you know, the Bible says that'll happen again. In the new heaven and the new earth, it says there will be no need for sun or moon, for God will be their light. We'll return to that original state of God being the source of our light and energy. Genesis is saying, don't worship creation. Don't worship stuff rather than the creator. I'm so thankful that we're not primitive, that we're advanced, that we've moved far beyond this kind of adoration of material stuff. That doesn't happen with us, right? I'll guess again. Many people have become entangled. All of us have become entangled in new forms of idolatry. Modern idolatry has little to do with wood carvings, but it can do 0 to 60 in 2.5 seconds. Maybe speed isn't your thing in a car, but you like to have heat in all the right places. I mean, the seat, the back of the seat, the steering wheel. This is important. Notice I, I point out the idolatry of warmers, but not coolers. Cooling is a necessity. It's not a luxury like a warmer. Anyway, the modern idol may not be a stone statue in a shrine, but it does guarantee that I can retire at 55 with enough money to live the lifestyle to which I've grown accustomed. Material things seem to cry out all the time for our worship, and we need to get a proper perspective on the stuff of this world. We need to remember who made it all, who, stains, who sustains it all, who alone truly deserves our worship and our adoration, and who all this stuff is pointing to. Our family is twice vacationed in Montana. Montana is where Kim's dad grew up until he went to Moody in Chicago at 18 years old. And uh, I loved going there. I had always looked forward to finally seeing a snow-capped mountain. Grew up in western New York. I spent summers in the Adirondack Mountains in New York. And, and I'd go and see these mountains, and I'd, I'd be like, where's the snow-capped thing? There's no snow. They look like big rolling hills, but they weren't snow-capped. And I had seen pictures of snow-capped mountains, and people had told me about snow-capped mountains. I'm like, I'm sure they're out there. I can't wait to see them. And so as we're driving on into Montana, I'm, I'm thinking, like, we'll hit the Montana state sign, and boom, there are mountains. And, and I'm looking, I'm like, this feeling a lot like western or, or eastern New York. It's feeling like the rolling hill thing. This has all been a lie. This has been a plot to gut against Dennis. What's going on here? And I'm driving along, and then way, way, way off in the distance, I see, I see a mound of dirt larger than I had ever seen, and there seemed to be a cloud at the top. And as I got closer and closer, I'm like, oh my word, they really are. They really are beautiful snow-capped mountains. I mean, you may think I was nuts, but I wanted to cry and laugh and smile all at the same time. It was probably not safe for me to be driving in that moment. I was so overcome by the beauty that was there. There were so many beautiful sights to be seen in that state. And here's the thing. All of that is just a speck of the wonder of the beauty of God. It gives us just a glimpse of a reflection of his majesty, of how awesome and how beautiful God really is. All of these things were created to show us God is so much better than anything you have in your hands. Another thing that this text teaches us is that God is very powerful. Several times we read that God spoke and things came into existence. We are so limited in power. Have you noticed that when you speak, things don't happen? Clean your room! 
hmm, nothing happens. What's going on here? We are limited in power, but God can speak. And the universe is changed. In the old Star Trek series, you may remember Captain Kirk often barked out the command, we need more power. We need more power. And with all the resources the Enterprise had, with all of its futuristic gadgets, there were times Scotty had to admit, we don't have the power, Captain. We just don't have it. When we humans speak, we see incredibly limited results. When God speaks, his power is unlimited. God created the world with the power of his words out of nothing. The Latin term for that is ex nihilo. When I make something, I need to start with something in order to make it. Been kind of into this, it's been on for years apparently, but this uh, British baking show thing. It's kind of fun, Mary Berry judging people on their cupcakes and everything. To date, as I've been watching this show, nobody has walked into the kitchen and gone, flour! And there was flour. Every person has to make what they make out of something. God just spoke. And it was. There was nothing. God spoke. There was something. Another theme in the creation account that we cannot look over is that God just keeps giving this running uh, commentary on his masterpiece. You'll see it over and over again when you read chapter 1. He said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he goes on to even bless all that is very good. I wonder if you'd take the time sometime this week to drink in just some of the wonder of God's creation. Notice the colors the birds, the plants, the beauty of the deep blue October sky. Look at the frost up close. And as you do, why not just audibly agree with God? You're right. This is really good. This is really, really good. And as you do, please realize that all of that goodness is just one small sliver of a fraction of the reflection of the goodness of our great God who made us. As you do, receive his blessing. Receive the smile of God on you. Delight in all he is and all he has done for you. You know, when the Hebrews referred to this world and the making of this world, they always used the word creation. Not nature. They never use the word nature. It's something here. It's, it's a subtle thing that we need to learn the precision of language, okay? They call it creation because in reality, there is nothing natural about this world. It's entirely supernatural. Every last bit of it came from the spoken word of God. The breath of God made all of this to be. Here's the final truth of the doctrine of creation that we need to see today. The climax of creation is the making, the creation of human beings. It's so important that it's recorded twice. Once in Genesis 1 and in more detail in Genesis chapter 2. As human beings, we live at risk of forgetting who we are. We live between two radically different extremes. On one hand, 
We become prideful and think we deserve a place equal to God. We may look at this circle and say, why don't I get a black chair? Why do I only have a stool? Why am I not equal with God? Sadly, this happened early in human history and it still happens today. On the other end of the continuum is an attitude that degrades human beings and treats them simply as a coincidental result of a bang or a cosmic accident. And between these two extremes lies the truth. We are God's creation, the making of his hands. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creative work. Yet we are not God. We are his children. We are valuable because of who he made us. He made us his children. And we are significant because of how he made us. He made us in his image The first thing we notice about the creation of human beings is that we are finite, we are limited, and we are fragile. We are not gods. The Bible says we're made of dust. It's important to notice that everything else was spoken into existence, but man was formed from dust. Genesis 3.19 tells us that from dust we came, and to dust we shall return. Dust. Something that accumulates until we sweep it away with a Swiffer or some lemon pledge. Dust. The idea of being made from dust conveys a message about our fragile nature. At the same time, while we are dust, that dust was imprinted with the image of God. We see this in Genesis 1.27. There's another Latin term for this. I need to warn you, we're going we're to stretch a little bit in this series, okay? The term is, is, is imago Dei, the image of God. This does not necessarily mean we look like God, but that we are like God. We're like Him in His character, in His being, in His personality, in that we are moral beings. We know good and we know evil, and we share the ability to experience community, to experience deep friendship. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Part of what makes humans unique is this. It is the only part of all creation to which God extended the invitation to a relationship with him. People truly matter to God. They matter so much that that He blesses them. He bestows enhanced, abundant life upon them. He provides food for them. And He gives them meaningful reason for existence. He gives them work to do. I want to say again, as we have in the past, this is pre-fall. Work comes prior to sin entering into the world. We work because the image of God is placed upon us. He created us with a need to work, to contribute, to add value, to make a difference. This is a meaningful source of dignity. God made them co-rulers of creation. In the creation process, God proves one more time just how special humans are to him. The chapter, as we already said, has this rhythm. God saw it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. When he comes to the creation of human beings, he even says, it is very good. But as we get over to Genesis 2.18, again, pre-sin, pre-fall, this is not the result of brokenness, we read for the first time that something is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. 
Lack of human companionship was a problem. Lack of human community was not good. God declared it so. Adam needed another human being in order to experience human community, in order to be able to experience relationship with someone else. Genesis records the story of a great parade of animals brought to Adam for naming. The process highlighted an issue. It highlighted a deficit. Adam was the only non-partnered entity in the entire garden. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from Adam, and from that spare rib, he creates someone that Adam will love for the rest of his days. He created a woman. When he wakes up, his response is sheer poetry. It really is. It's Hebrew poetry. There's a play on words in Hebrew that we might miss in English. Adam says, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. In Hebrew, this kind of wordplay is quite common. We'll see it again and again as we take on the Old Testament. Now, even this passage is referred to as a helper. And some guys will hear that and go, honey, you need to listen. Here it is. The Bible calls you a helper. Dishes, laundry, blah, blah, blah. The, the Bible said it right there. Beginning of the Bible, helper. The term is only used a couple times in the Old Testament. And you know, all the other times it's used, it's a reference to God the Father himself. The term is not saying that the woman was a slave or inferior or someone to boss around. Remember, the same word is used of God. Do you view God as your slave? This term would more aptly be translated rescuer or completer. Only through the creation of of woman, could Adam experience community with another human being? And only through the creation of the woman could that human experience expand multiple times over. She rescued him from what was not good. She brought completion to his broken state. She rescued him from his aloneness and she guaranteed that the human experience of community could be multiplied many, many, many times over. In the creation of a woman, we have the founding of a new community and that is the basis of the doctrine of the Trinity and creation. Now next week, we, we will talk about God's dream for community and how it was shattered and what he was willing to do in order to see that that dream did not die. We're in a transition right now. Our servers are actually going to move to the back and they'll collect the offering. And as they do, I'm going to, I'm going to continue a little bit here with um, what I'm going to be asking you to do now. I'd like you to try something. Maybe you've never done it before. Maybe you've done it once or twice I'd like you to try over the next 40 weeks, from now on into June, to read through the Old Testament with me, that we would read it together. For some of you, this is, this, is your, this is your very first read through the Old Testament. I'm really excited for you. We all believe, you can come, yeah. We all believe that the Bible is, is the inspired Word of God. It, it is living, it's an active book, and, and it can change your life. For people who want to grow in devotion to Christ, it's essential that we read the Bible, and, and if possible, to read it daily. And so we're going to have this privilege of, of working our way through the books of the Old Testament. And think about this, at the very least, it would not be a good thing to show up in heaven and say, have Zephaniah come up to you and say, so what did you think of my book? 
They have them say, well, you know, I never actually read it. They put you right there smack dab between, between Habakkuk and Haggai, and you were in kind of a bad location. I mean, we don't want to do that. We want, we want to be able to say, great book, enjoyed it. I'm so excited about what God is going to do as we read this book together. Remember, it's, it's the book. It's the book that shaped Jesus' understanding of who God the Father was. So what I'd like to do is talk through how we will do this together And as we do, I just want to point out that I've been thinking about this quite literally for weeks and weeks. How how do we come up with with a reading program that kind of meets all the diverse needs of the room? There are some challenges. For example, the first challenge is that some of you are already doing reading programs, and you're doing really well in them. I mean, a lot of you are part of version. I'm a part of that as well. And I watch you just kind of clicking through these programs, you know, unless you're doing like the communion question this morning and pretending in order to look like you're reading, which I don't think you're doing. You're reading. It's great. And you may be thinking, all right, I've already got that reading. Or like, I'm a part of a journey group that's doing a lot of heavy scripture reading. And now Dennis is saying, wow, go ahead and read this too. And so, you know, you might already be involved in a study. What do you do with that? This is not intended at all for guilt, okay? It really is. I just want you to think through this. If you're in that spot of saying, I don't know if I could add anything else, would you do a quick inventory of your, of your media intake? For one week, just write down every, every hour of TV you watch, every you know, moment of Facebook you take in, all that stuff. Go ahead and write. I, I just kind of suspect that somewhere in there we can find another 20 minutes. I kind of suspect that we could find another 20 minutes. And and here's the thing. You might actually find yourself in this reading, reading a little differently. In some of the reading you have, you're reading it very, we might say devotionally. In other words, you're reading and just spending time and letting it sink in. And you might take this reading and say, I'm going to read this a little bit more intellectually. I'm just going to, I'm going to read for content. So there might be a different approach that you take with this reading from the other reading that you're doing. So there's kind of that challenge that for some of us, we're already doing some reading and oh no, now what do I do with another one? But then there's also this variety of technological aptitude in the room. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm finally at the point that I, I was for a long time the, the tech whiz in my family. Everybody came to me and now every once in a while, a contemptuous look comes from my 28 and 26 year old in particular. As I, for example, go to iPhotos and I start doing this, and they're like, you know, you could just boom. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And what do you think I do next time? Do the same thing as I did before. So, you know, we had a lot of technological aptitude going on in the room. For some people, this is, this is still high tech for you. You like this wrinkly paper stuff. And, and for others of you, you know, you can just boom, boom, boom around the, around the interweb like nobody's business. So anyway, here's, here's what we're going to do. I, I, I looked through programs, and this is the one that I found the most intriguing. Talked to you in the past about this group called the Bible Project. The Bible Project does a great job, I think, um, first of all, they put together a number of creative videos that relay some really teaching in a wonderful way. Their approach is stimulating. They do a great job honoring the historical nature of the text without being so academic that you know, sleep ensues. So what they've done, they've teamed up with another group called Read Scripture to produce a one-year reading program through the Bible. And here's what's really cool. If we just do the Old Testament part, it wraps up about simultaneously with our study. So, you know, even if you do this semi-faithfully, you just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple days a week. 
That in itself will do so much. You're going to learn so much and grow so much through that. So if you were to get the, the program, if you were to go today to your links, on the links, there was a link for you to click that would take you to this week's reading. And this is literally, it'll be laid out in a single column. So take that one, put under that, take that one, put under that. Day one reading, it actually has a video for you to watch. You're going to read Genesis 1 to 3, and then they also incorporate the Psalms along the way. So you do a portion of Genesis, and then you do the Psalm. There is not a video always for every day, but as it turns out, this first seven days there are. What may be cool as part of your family reading plan, if you still do dinner, is to pull out the iPad and say, we're just going to watch the video together. We're just going to watch this. And maybe you pick out one verse from that passage uh, that is that is meaningful. So uh, you can actually get this every week through the links by simply hitting the link that says reading plan, boom, there it is. And you can go to that. Now, in terms of the technological variations we have in the room, you get the plan every week from the links. Second, you can get a paper copy from the welcome desk. So if you're still not into all this phone stuff and computer stuff, paper copies are out there for you. They also have a number of these studies in version in the Bible app that a number of you do. And if you still want to get your version credits, you could actually find that study over there. They don't do it the same way, unfortunately, where it's Genesis on through Revelation you do using this particular program. But you can find the bits and pieces. You can go over and do that. I'm not doing that for you because you know way better than I do how to make that happen. You can also sign up for your own email on the Bible Project website, or you could also on your own download the entire reading program. So if you go to their website and go to the bottom of the page, the sky blue part, here's what you see. You see, read through the Bible in one year. Put in your email there, hit join. They send you the email every week that we're going to be taking you to in the links. So you could do it on your own. There it is. That's you. There's also right above that white square, it says read scripture app. You can get an app for that. Pretty cool. So it's all there ready for you. You can do it that way. You can also download the reading plan right below the box. So all of that is right there. I want to encourage you to whatever means works for you, go ahead, go ahead and take that on. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So two things as we, as we close up. I promise you, as you read through the Old Testament, there are going to be points that you're going to read things and you're just going to go, I don't get that and I never will. That is just, that is confusing, that's nuts. I don't get it. And unfortunately, I think sometimes when it comes to reading the Old Testament, we can obsess over the things we don't get and lose out on the things we do get. So really focus in on what you do get. And understand at some point, you will get the things you don't get. My kid is in Texas studying accounting, and it has not been his easiest fall of study. More than once, he's wondered if underwater basket weaving would have been a better major. Uh, the whole accounting thing has been rough. And his big sister got on the phone one day. She's a math teacher, and she said, Nate, what is two plus two? Now, I never assume that answer these days with new math. So let's go with the traditional answer is four, okay? Um, it's four. He reflexively said four. Said, you know, there was a time you didn't know that. And now it's piece of cake reflexive. It'll come. It'll come. There's stuff in the Bible that you know reflexively. And there's other stuff you won't know until you get to heaven. And by the way, 
get, get, get away from the myth that you're going to know it instantly in heaven. You're going to arrive in heaven with the knowledge you have right now. You're going to spend eternity learning. The cool part is you will be sinless, so you won't be lazy anymore. You'll actually want to study. You'll want to study. You'll want to grow. You'll want to learn. You'll be able to walk up to Zephaniah and say, I don't get what you wrote here, man. And he'll be able to explain it, and we'll get the answers to these things. Don't get so hung up on what you don't understand that you miss out on the joy of what you do. Here's the other thing. You will be reading through. You're going to read through Leviticus. And you're going to see that Moses just seems a bit obsessed with different colors of mold. You're just like, what is the deal, dude? I mean, green mold, blue mold, red mold. What's the deal with mold? Just, ah, get some Lysol. Anyway, you're looking at this and you don't get it. And you're going to have several what's up with that moment. So here's what I want to do. Got an email for you. Dennis at southfieldchurch.com. You have a question, you send it to this email. I have this email set up to automatically forward to John Beaker and Dave Morey, and they will answer every question you ever had, okay? So we'll be good to go, but okay, I don't. Anyway, send them. If I can, I'll try to answer by email. It won't always be right in that moment, uh, and we'll try to bring some of those answers to Sunday morning as well. So I hope you'll try it. Tomorrow morning, get started. I already read Genesis 1, 1 to 3 for you. You can start at verse 4. Go ahead and read it, and let's see what God does as we grow together. Stand with me. Father God in heaven, I thank you for inviting us into this circle. Father, Son, and Spirit, and he said, human beings, I want you in here too. I want you to know what it is like to enjoy the fellowship of this circle. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you that so many of us have accepted it. I pray for those that have not yet, that they, even as studying through this first part of the book, would come to the realization that God wants them to take a seat at the table as well to come taste the grace. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week. When I am a wasteland, you are the water. 